you would join me in opening up your Bibles, book of Hebrews, and now chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, as we bow before you this morning and we look to your word, pray that you would become for us the divine teacher, the great God, the Holy Spirit, who penned these words, your inspiring work in the hands of men. As you move them to write these words, Lord, we would read from them. We would learn from them. We would request, Lord, understanding from them. And Lord, we would pray that we would make them the words that we follow, the words that are our guides, the words that are our template for life, that you might be pleased with our walk, with our run of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've spent many, many weeks in Hebrews chapter 11 looking at the lives of others who have come before us, others who ran by faith. They had a faith that pleased God. And now the whole book of Hebrews turns and swings like a door and opens for us a pathway to follow a door to follow those of faith who've gone before us and to follow after them. And so I've entitled the series that we'll be engaging in here in chapter 12 through 13 is How to Run the Faith Race. How to Run the Faith Race. It's one thing to read about others who have ran the race of faith, to cheer them on and say, oh, wow, oh, my, oh, how grand that is. But God did not just give us a list of all of those people of faith so that we could then sit back and say, well, I'm glad there was somebody, but not me. This is actually a springboard for us to then run the faith race ourselves. To run a race is exactly the metaphor, exactly the picture that God wants us to have of the life that we are leading as Christians. And races are, are important because races have the connotation of competition, don't they? You have a race, you're usually racing against other runners. When I was young, I loved to race. And you'll even hear it on the playgrounds today, the same words I used to use to a lot of other people on the playground, and the words were these. You want to race? 
And someone would take up the challenge and say, yeah, I'll race you. Okay, you say go and we'll race. And it hasn't changed in hundreds of years. We all know the race. And the races only get more and more competitive as you move up the line. And this year we're in a, an Olympic year, in a summer Olympic year, and there's going to be races of every kind. A competition. And as you watch, it's particularly the track athletes that you oftentimes get a preview of, before they race, there's things that they do. There's things that they do before they ever put their feet in the blocks or toe the line to run the race. There's a, a mental preparation that they go to. They, they also have a preparation of changing clothes. You'll see them doing different things, taking things off, putting things on, whether they be clothes or sweats and getting into the running clothes. There'll be the warm-ups that they do to get their body ready for the ultimate exertion that it's going to put forward so that they might win the race. You'll see them doing stretching and various other exercises. You'll see them moving themselves and running in place and, and warming their muscles up. Well, God used this race metaphor on purpose for us. And before we run the faith race, he's given us a list of people who have ran before to inspire us, but also he wants to prepare us for getting ready. And so before you run the faith race, you're going to need to follow those who came before you. What did they do? Over the next number of weeks, I'm going to give you four fundamentals for running the faith race. But this morning, we're going to just start on the very first fundamental. And the first fundamental for running the faith race is get ready before you run. If you're going to run, first you have to get ready to run. And so this morning, I'm going to give you two of three pre-run preparations pre-run preparations. Now, before I start too much farther, I, I realize that there are some among you that when I said that I asked people to race, you in your mind said, I wasn't one of those people. If you'd asked me, do you want to race? I would have said what? No, I don't want to run. And in Christianity, that is a real feature of certain ones as well. Many Christians don't want to run the faith race. They don't want to be in that kind of a contest, in that kind of exertion, be in that kind of training and preparation and then the race itself. And even so, in our world and over the teaching of the years by a, a weak and shallow church, Many Christians have been taught that there's no need to run, that they can simply let go and let God. God will do everything. You can just passively go through and sort of like a, a pinball in there. Every so often, God through the whappers will give you a whap and you'll bounce into the things you're supposed to. Well, that's not how the Bible presents it at all. Some might have the notion that there's only a few who are among the saved who need to run, and they're the fast ones. Isn't that the way it is? There's nobody on the playground that asks to run when they find out they're the slow one. 
It's the fast ones that want to race. And sometimes people might say, well, if you're fast, then you're supposed to race. But if you're not, you're not supposed to run. Let me point that out that that is also a fallacy when we put that into the church. This is very clear. We all run. There are not some that walk. There are not some that get to man the water table for those who run. And when they pass by, you can get out of your chair and hand them a glass of water. Sadly, too often the American church has lived the faith race in that way, thinking we'll just send our money to the missionaries. We'll just give our money to pastors. We'll just give our money to church workers, and they can do the work, and we'll show up, you know, when it's convenient or on Sundays because we've done our bit. No, you haven't. So to get ready to run first, you need to have some pre-run preparations. And the first pre-run preparations for all Christians is this. Get motivated. Get motivated. And we can say that we've already been motivated in a certain sense by the whole of chapter 11, right? If you didn't think the whole of chapter 11 was going to come down on your shoulders, you haven't been listening. God put this whole chapter of faith there, not so that you can read about it and say, woohoo, somebody else can, but that, yahoo, I get to run as well. To get motivated. The text says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I think it's very important that we get motivated by the mere opportunity to run that we've been given an opportunity to run. If you can run, slow, medium, fast, or anything in between, you realize that it is a privilege to run. And if you used to be the one when you were young asking others to race and now you are old, you realize that it was a real opportunity, a real blessing in your life to have been able to run at all. Amen? Because now... You don't. Or when you do, even yourself, you say things like, oh, this is pitiful. Look at me. Good thing that little kid's just a two years old or I'd never catch him. You say to your grandchild. The opportunity to run is given to us in the very first phrase and then near the last phrase of the first verse of chapter 12. Notice these words. Here's the opportunity to run. Therefore, we also. Now, I want you to keep your finger there and just let it flow along. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And now here it is. Where's your finger pointing? And let us run. We also let us run. This is not an optional phrase. This is a command. This is God's putting on us not only the opportunity to run, but the obligation to run. Let us run. 
It is indeed the purpose we are called to exercise faith is so that we would do so in a running manner, going forward from Abel to Noah on one side of the flood to all of those who followed out, whether it be Abraham to Moses and all that we have studied through chapter 11, then we become the we also. We also are with them in following the pattern. And he, so then he said, let us run. The purpose for which we were called to faith is running in that faith. I take you even to the practical realm. When David, the king of Israel, was called to step out in faith, he was called to step out in faith many times to defend his country against the Philistines and other enemies wherein he actually had to face them in battle. We remember him facing Goliath on his own, but then he later would ask the Lord, should I go up against the Philistines? And he would go up against the Philistines. And there was an understanding in the mind of David that he was not only made spiritually a follower of God by faith, but that God had designed him and given him physical characteristics that would allow him to carry out what his calling as king and protector of a nation would require of him. And in Psalm 18.29, we read this about David's declarations about his body. He says, for you, speaking to God, for by you, I can run. By you, Lord, I can run against a troop. The reason I can run at all, the reason I can engage in these battles is because you have made me thus, that I can run against an entire troop. And by God, listen, the next Line, by God, I can leap over a wall. A militaristic picture. He understood that not only did God anoint him to be king, but he didn't anoint him to be king, to sit on the throne and do nothing. But to use what God had given him, and even the courage that God imbued him with, to fight against the enemies of Israel. Everything that God creates, God creates with a purpose. And when a creature like us fulfill that purpose, we declare God's glory and what he has made us to be. Even the creation that is in the heavens, God has created and given a course to run. Psalm 19, the very next psalm, verse 4. And I give you the last half of verse 4. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. In the heavens, he, God, has set a tabernacle for the sun, a place that the sun lives. So the way God thinks about the sun isn't the way we think about the sun. There's a place that the sun lives, and God said, this is your home, this is where you dwell, I'm putting you there. So the sun is where it is, in this galaxy of the Milky Way, because... God put it there to dwell, and now look at its purpose. It's opportunity, if you will, to run. The sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. 
and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. The bridegroom is dressed in his finest in all the glory, and he goes to meet his bride, and he steps forth in all his glory, and he shines like a strong man to run its race. Even the sun is a runner before God. Verse 6, it's rising from one end of heaven and it's circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And some might say, well, actually, pastor, you don't realize that the sun is a stationary and it is actually the earth that uh, travels around the sun and, and spins. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, what is this little solar system doing? It's moving. It's on a course. We're not stationary. We found that much out. But let me just tell you this. We haven't found out near enough to start telling God what he did and how it's working. We'd just be better be very thankful that sun is still running its course every single day. Its purpose is the opportunity to run. Ours is let us run. We also. It is a privilege to run for a prize, to be able to enter the race. The Olympics are coming. And with them there are the Olympic trials. Before they ever get to run in the Olympics, they must go through the Olympic trials and there is a winnowing process. They winnow down those who are not as fast as others in each particular race and only from each country do those fastest of the fast, those bestest of the best, the most enduring of the endurance get to go. They compete. And they compete for a prize that everyone who runs wants. Notice the way Paul also talks about the Christian life with regard to the picture of running in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know? So this is something we should know. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? It seems kind of simplistic, doesn't it? If you're in a race and it's a running race, Everybody runs. I'm just saying, that's true. But though everyone runs, one receives the prize. One receives the prize. One receives the prize. Run in such a way, now this brings it right off the track and field, right into the pew. Run in such a way that you, may obtain it. Get motivated to run and take first place rather than in the church say, well, I'm just not one that gets to run, but I'm sure glad to see others do it. That is not the way to look at this. It is to be motivated that we get to run, and if God has given you a run that you might attain it, I think there's a lot for you to achieve, and maybe we've been selling ourselves short as people of faith, and we need to follow those of faith before. Which leads us to the second reason to be motivated. We run and get motivated to run by the opportunity to run, the we also. But secondly, we are motivated by the crowd of witnesses. 
the crowd of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11, but not only them. All who have come before and walked by faith from the first created man, that's why it starts with Abel, and moves all the way to the present to we who are reading this book of Hebrews. And there's three motivating features of this crowd of, of witnesses, if you will. The first is that they surround us. Listen now, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded, we're surrounded. Now, sometimes that's a bad thing. If you're surrounded by enemies, you're in trouble. But if you're surrounded by friends, now you're in a position of strength. You are surrounded. You know, isn't there something that we learned, and, and even now the world of psychology and the world of, of, of human sociology has said that during the COVID lockdowns, something that we heretofore didn't realize how valuable it was, was made aware to us. Because in the COVID-19 lockdowns that were across this country and this world, the lockdowns put people into isolation, away from others. And the loneliness factor, these people who study these things, went sky high. And with it, depression and despair and lethargy and lack of action sitting around doing nothing, staring at each other in the houses, going to the grocery store and needing to keep six feet away from a fellow shopper while you wore your suffocating mask that didn't help, but there we were. How great was that? That was horrible. Why did God call us sheep? If he'd have called us tigers, then we would know we're going to live an isolated life. Tigers hunt alone. That's it. Male tigers and female tigers don't hunt together. No, they come together to mate, and then that's it. He didn't call us tigers. He called us sheep. And there's something about sheep. They like other sheep. They hang out together. They move everywhere together. If you don't keep them together, they panic and try to get back together. Even running over the top of you if you happen to be the one that's between the two groups of sheep. Togetherness is the description of the body of Christ. That's even what Paul used. You're a body. And you know, last time I checked, for one body part to work, it needs to be connected to the other body parts. If you cut one part off, let me just say this, it dies. That's stark truth. We're also described as a family. A family. How do families work? You know what you need to have a family? You need to have people together. Each one doing its part. Even the term that Christ used, I will build my church, is the 
Greek term ekklesia, and ekklesia comes from the word crowd. A group gathered for a purpose. We are designed to be together, and we've got a great cloud, this surrounding group around us. And we have to start thinking like Christians are supposed to think in our preparation to be motivated to run, knowing that we have around us a cloud, a crowd that God has designed. And we have to start thinking of ourselves in our Christian walk, not as isolated Christians, in which is depression, despair, lethargy, all of the things that go along with that lonely life, and replace it. Because it's been undone. You actually can't do church at home in front of your screen. Ask the troops that go overseas, is Zoom all you need from your family? No. We need to be together. And we are together. Do you, do you even realize the way Jesus taught us to pray? The Lord's Prayer, we call it. It's also the disciples' prayer. He taught them to pray. Notice how he taught them to pray. How does it begin? Well, it begins with God, our Father. Hmm. Uh, singular or plural? Did it start singular or plural? Plural. Our Father. So when you pray, don't play, my Father, I'm alone here, I'm praying, our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then this, give what? Us. Our daily bread, singular or plural? Plural. So you don't just pray for your own bread. You pray for bread for everybody. That's the thinking that's been lost in the church to be motivated to run. If you're running for yourself, you can't go any farther than the front porch. You go back in because... I don't feel like it today. Forgive us as we forgive. Do not lead us into temptation. We don't resist sin alone. We resist it together. Deliver us from evil. And on it goes. We are motivated to be surrounded by those who have gone before in that sense, a figurative sense, is to realize that secondly, they outnumber us. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So great. There's not just a few who have run the faith race before us. There is a crowd that has gone before us. And that's why Christians need to read church history, read just Christian history, to be motivated by those who have gone before and have suffered great sufferings and who have reached great heights or who have simply maintained and gone on, raised children, earned wages, faithful to the Lord, kept the church together, kept going together, and did not give up. Those are the ones we need to number. Even those who wandered in the wilderness, even those who were sawn asunder, even those who watched Jericho fall, 
are witnesses, and they outnumber us. In one sense, they are judicial witnesses, and uh, they are, in a sense, watching the good that has happened, even as we look again at the last portion of Hebrews 11, verse 39. It says, and all these, and all these, who? All these of faith, who he just has talked about, even the unnamed multitudes, all these have obtained a good testimony through faith, though they did not receive the fullness of the full promise. All of these. A cloud is the exact word that God used, not me. Certainly he's using it figuratively, but he is not using it without the picture of the tangible clouds that we know. Have you ever been in dense fog? I mean outside in it, not just in your car thinking this is bad. But been outside in that deep cloud where you can't see very far, but yet the cloud itself touches you. The weight of the moisture, each molecule of water is there. You can breathe it. You can see it. You can feel it. You can sense it. Even though you're not exactly the cloud, you're walking in the cloud and it's touching you. And I don't think this is lost on us as an example for us to understand this cloud of witnesses as we are Americans. As we are Americans, there's, there's a history of people that have gone before us who have maintained this union, the United States of America, from the very beginning. And when you study that history and you read about George Washington out of money, pretty well out of food, and all the soldiers who were with him at Valley Forge, you can almost sense the coldness of their feet that were covered with rags, and yet the power of their beings that rose up on Christmas, crossed the Potomac and said, we're going to give it to the Hessians and slogged through the snow with their feet bleeding to bring a victory and earn the United States a victory before we were ever a United States. And certainly as Westerners living here in Montana, we have a, a feeling of connection and a closeness with us of those pioneers who came out and homesteaded this country or the miners who came to try and earn the great living that they hoped would set them up for life. And those who braved the wilds and braved the weather and set up their houses in the middle of nowhere. I see them every day when I drive home. There's an old cabin that sits down by the creek and the roof has fallen in, but the logs are still there and the windows are there. And we say to ourselves as Vicki and I drive by, I wonder what they were like. Can you imagine that that's where they put their little house right there and then they had to walk that far to the creek to get water? There they are. Wow, they were tough. Weren't they something? So see, you can understand this very nature when he says you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Though it seems surreal, it is very real. It is tangible. You can feel them with us as we run the faith race 
there's reason to keep going because they did. And thirdly, they motivate us because they're watching us. Indeed, they're witnessing themselves. It could be that they just were witnessed by God, that they were judicial witnesses in the sense that God said they were people of faith. But I think it's more than that because it's supposed to motivate me to run. So there's some questions here. Are these witnesses to the faith in the judicial sense? Or are they spectators of the present generation of Christians in ongoing secession? Or are they both? Paul speaking to Timothy at the very end of the first letter he writes to Timothy, chapter 6, implores Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Oh, Pastor, now first you had us running, now you got us fighting. I didn't want to run today, I don't want to fight today, but now you got us doing both. Well, if you're going to join Timothy, there you are. Fight the good fight of faith. Listen, lay hold on eternal life. That doesn't mean get it. That means don't let go of it. To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Testified by those around us. I think we are testifying to them. I think there's a sense in which they have witnessed to us and we will witness to them the very same thing. If you allow me to continue in the Olympics as our example, there's some races in the Olympics that are fascinating to watch, and they're uh, very fascinating because they are multi-person teams. They're called relay races. A relay, there's one baton. One baton that is passed from first runner, second runner, third runner, etc. And when you're learning to run that race, the key to the whole thing is how you pass the baton. You can be the fastest person in the world, but if you can't receive the baton or pass it off to the next one, you're going to lose. It's a team idea that we all need one another to carry their baton. And to pass it. I see these witnesses as those who have run before, have stretched out their hands through the word of God, and we, because we were saved by God, are reaching our hands back and waiting to feel the touch of the baton so that we might grab it in our hands like it's life itself, pick it up, and not let go until we've rounded the final turn and get to pass it off where? To someone else. The worst tragedy is if somebody's running along and they drop their baton, which is disqualifying. I think we need to see the crowd of witnesses that way. They have run so hard. They have put out all of their life. And at the end of their life, they have reached to us and we reached out our hand and we took the baton. And where is your baton? We are motivated by them to keep going. Was it not the Puritans who came to this country, not to establish the United States of America, or the Anabaptists with them, not to establish the United States of America? They came here to have religious freedom. 
They were persecuted in the countries from which they came, and they set up the entirety of our East Coast as a place where you could worship God the way God said in his word without getting thrown into prison. And they have passed that baton down through the history of the United States of America. And I wonder where the church is today that was supposed to take that up and is now adopting what is ostensibly a religion that comes from our government telling us to worship man, worship sex, worship the idols of our time, and worship the government. No. That is dropping the baton that is not running the faith race. We're on the same relay team. What a picture it is if the fourth and final runner, when the third one comes in, having expended all their energy, passes it to the fourth one, and the fourth one says, I don't feel like running today. I think I'll just go sit down. Everyone watching the Olympics would say, what in the world is going on with that person? And I think our motivation has to be, what would the crowd of witnesses say to us? Where's the baton? You're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Run! They say, run! They say, run! Let's run. The second pre-race preparation is this. You need to get loosed. I don't mean loosened up. I mean loosed. The opposite of bondage and slavery is to be loosed from those bonds. To be set free. We have said in our beginning analogy, the runners, when they come out, have some pre-race preparations, and part of those are getting out of heavier clothes into their racing clothes. You will almost never see anyone walking around and living in and working in the racing clothes they wear for any event in the Olympics. They're specific for running fast and being unencumbered. Our text says in chapter 12, verse 1, the second portion of that verse, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Notice that laying aside every weight, it comes before let us run. If you want to be prepared to run, you have to get rid of the dead weight and lay it aside. You know, it was 30 below a plus last week. When I went outside, I went outside encumbered. I went outside constrained. I had socks. I had underwear as thick as a polar bear. I had pants 
lined with fleece. I had polypropylene. I had these things, and Mark, I was wearing the bunny fuzz hat. That ain't for running fast. It ain't even for looking good. I went past all the gloves. I was wearing mitts. That's what Vicky's dad used to call them. These are the old mitts. They have an inner shell, a mitten that's made of wool, and then a leather part that goes out. And if you want to be, that's the thing, baby. Going to feed the horses, I said, from the little peephole of my face that was the only exposed portion of my skin as I clunked outside. If that's how you want to run the faith race, you can do it. But you're encumbered. You are not loosed. How about those muck boots we all buy nowadays? You know, we used to have galoshes so you put over your shoes, over boots. You know, then we had the packs. Now we all buy the muck boots or some variety of them. What do those things weigh, 20 pounds? Nobody says, hey, you want to race when they're wearing those unless they're a kid. So this is the analogy. Set aside the dead weight, this mass. This word even means the protuberance, which I couldn't help but look down in my middle and think, uh-oh. Because you also don't see fatties running the races. I'm in trouble. All of that wears you down, takes your energy, slows you down. And some of these things may even be innocent things, harmless things. They're not bad. It's not bad to wear coveralls. Just don't wear them while you run. What inhibits you? You need to streamline yourself, lay aside every weight. And of course, in this case, it's not clothing. That's where the analogy ends. It's some of the things that have been talked about in the book of Hebrews, and may I say will be talked about in greater detail in the rest of chapters 12 and 13, those things that will slow us down. But just by way of reminding you of some of the dead weight that goes with dead religion that shouldn't be brought with you in this faith race, I bring you back to Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. Listen, here's the foundation. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So your confidence is not that you've done enough work so that God will let you into heaven. You're not following the Jewish legalisms. You're not even following the modern legalisms that add to the text of scriptures things you should have to do and not have to do that have no reference in the scripture at all. If you're doing things to get yourself into heaven that aren't listed as things you're supposed to do in the Bible, you've got dead weight. you got to get rid of them. They will slow you down just like muck boots when you try and run because they're stuck in the muck of false religion. Faith toward God. Even today, we can add so easily to the text of scriptures and put on ourselves and on others things that aren't in the Bible itself. Some are still trying to go back to the food laws of the Old Testament. Some have dress codes. Though there is a dress code, you know what the dress code is? 
love your neighbor as yourself. So don't entice them into sin with their eyes by how you dress. La. Galatians chapter 4. Paul is asking the question, why are you dressing up in your winter clothes to run the faith race? He's saying, why are you putting all these weights back on you or you've been delivered from them? In Galatians 4, verse 9, notice how Paul says it. He says, but now, after you have known God, or rather, listen, are known by God. You see, that's the thing. Some people say, do you know God? Oh, yes, I know God. Well, here's the real question. Does God know you? Is he in covenant with you? Then the question could be, are you in covenant with him, i.e., you believe him? I can't say anymore. I'm already dicey for time. After you have known God, or rather are known by God, listen, Paul asks this question, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in, here it is, bondage. You want to be in slavery again? I've released you from thinking you could do enough good to earn heaven. Even by keeping all the Mosaic law, I've released you from that. Believe in me, and that's what saves you. Then just follow me by faith. Why would you want to put the shackles back on? Is it that fun to run with all this weight? You used to know guys in the military getting trained and training themselves to carry a pack. And, and some of the more zealous ones would fill their pack. And then they'd go out and they'd find rocks. And they'd put rocks in their rucksack. That's what we used to call a rucksack, not a backpack. And actually, it was also called a Alice pack when I was in. Do I have a testimony? There's a testimony. Okay. And then they'd go out and run. Now, there's, there's a way to run. But, you know, they didn't look good. They didn't look fast. They might have been getting stronger, but watching that sack of rocks on their back hit them in the back. I'm just thinking, ow, 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 ow. And that's exactly what God's trying to tell us. Why are you going back and filling your, your rucksack with rocks and then try to run fast? He said, I'm afraid for you lest I have labored in vain for you. To Timothy, Paul would say this, O Timothy, guard that was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. Those who think they know it all have got no clue what the Bible teaches, purvey it all over the place, and want everybody else to listen to them and do what they say. Just Timothy, shut them up and shut them out. Do church. Follow my word says, by professing that some have strayed concerning the faith, Matthew, Jesus speaks about those who would add weight to true faith, particularly the Pharisees who would add extra laws to the word of God. And this is what he thought about it. For they bind heavy burdens, Matthew 23, 3, 4, excuse me, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They said, here, let me load sacks of rocks into your rucksack, and I'll watch you run. 
I'm not doing that. you got to be out of your mind. And people are willing to do that. For some people, people love to put on themselves a burden God never meant so that they can play the martyr or something in their sufferings from God rather than just follow him by faith and let the sufferings come where God wants them. In Matthew 11, Jesus said these words. This is how to unencumber, how to get ready to lay aside the weight. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice he didn't say you're not going to have to pull a yoke. He just said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How can you pull a yoke and, and still find rest? Because you're unfettered. You're unencumbered. You've been loosed of the weight of the burden of trying to earn salvation yourself, you're trusting God who has earned your salvation for you. Then you can pull the weight God gives you. It says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he says. Isn't that what it was saying in similar fashion? In Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of the faith. And again, in the beginning, enter my rest. And finally, this morning, we look at being loosed. Get rid of dead weight. Now, get rid of sin. Get rid of sin. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin, listen, which so easily ensnares us. It's one thing to run with weight and bulk. It's another thing to try and run with your foot caught in a trap. You're not going to get too far. You know, the things about snares is this. When a snare is set, they don't just leave the trigger, the loop, the trap door, out where you can see it. It's disguised. Even the scent is of the human setting that is attempted to be removed, and, and a more appealing scent is applied to the trap so that the foolish critter will come along and say, Oh, I'll go in there. It always looks good. Didn't it, Eve, who took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and seeing that it was pleasant to the eye and good to eat, she gave it to her husband and the dope ate it. Right in the trap. And then what was once beautiful became a snare. And they hid and covered themselves with leaves. Let me just to begin with, because many other things are going to be addressed in the sin area in chapter 12 and 13, let me just take you back to a summary of the Ten Commandments and then perhaps a little more. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. And in them you can see the honor of God. I have no other gods before me. But it is summarized at the end in this way, and I think it's a summary of all of it, because what gets in the way of having only one God and nothing before him and no idols is this sin. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So even of God, you can't covet God's glory and position because it's not yours. And you can't take from anyone else because it's not yours. To think we deserve or that we can have what others can't have or we should have what they have, that's a sin that is a snare. And it comes straight from the world. And sometimes it's couched in nice language. The scent they put on the trap is, well, God wants you to be happy. So do what makes you happy. You know, I've read my Bible quite a bit, and I've never found where God wants me to be happy. Not once. I have found that God wants me to be joyous, and I'm commanded to be joyous, but not happy. Because you can have everything taken away from you, and you can still have joy in the Lord. But happiness is self-fulfilling and selfish. And the world preaches that. First John reminds us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen, the lust of the flesh, what your body wants, the lust of the eyes, what your eyes lay a hold on and wants that, of the pride of life, the position you think you deserve or want to achieve, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 Corinthians, Paul said, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That's certainly preparation to run. You eat certain things. You don't eat other things. You drink certain things, you don't drink other things. Therefore I run. Excuse me. Now they do this for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now verse 26. Therefore I run, Paul says, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, meaning shadow boxing. It says, but I discipline my body to bring it into subjection. The literal term is I beat my body. No, I'm not saying that we should be into flatulation. I'm saying that we, what we should be doing are, is to make sure that we bring our bodies into subjection to God's word. Paul even says the danger of himself, lest I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified. See, it goes from pulpit to pew. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get ready to run. We need to lay aside some of these things that are getting in our way. The bulk and the sin. And we need to get remotivated. I think we've got a perfect time to run in. A time like, I would say, no Americans before us have had. And how will we run? And how will we carry our baton to the finish and pass it off? I treat you. Join me as I turn my attention to this as well. 
and get ready to run the faith race. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today, for your word. Lord, we are humbled by it. We are convicted by it. But Lord, don't let it crush us. Let it motivate us. Let us get about the business of being loosed from the weight and the sin that so easily encumbers us. And let us run. Let us run in faith. And help us as we go through this study in the next number of weeks where we would have in our heart this phrase on our lips. Do you want to race? For the joy of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.